Yes, guys, welcome back. Unlocked football. We're in the new year now, 2023, so a lot of excitement going into this year. Um, hopefully, you know, another good year ahead. Um, we're in the studio, of course, and there's actually a session going on. Um, listeners may hear a ball bounce around or, you know, someone yelling good job or something like this, but, you know, it's all football for us. So, you know, for around sessions, around football, for us, it's still good. So our listeners, if you hear that, just so you know, just a heads up. Today, our guest, um, man, I'm really excited about this conversation ahead. Um, this individual has put together a massive, massive resource for any player, coach, analyst, lover of football. Um, very impressive, useful information that I think um, anyone could benefit from. And we're going to tap into a bit of that today, um, including analysis, scouting, coach education, uh, you name it. So again, another good football conversation. And our guest today, Reese Desmond, thanks for coming on, man. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and I'm excited to enjoy the discussions with you. Definitely. So the mastermind site, um, this is your platform, your resource that for me, I've, do I've dove into it um, over the last few weeks and a lot of articles I just find very insightful, a lot of information. And to be honest, I would recommend anyone who's just interested in football to kind of keep tabs on this on a regular basis, you know, update every once in a while as you are putting out articles and information. So for anyone who doesn't know about the Mastermind site, how would you describe it and what, what is this platform about? Yeah, first, thank you very much for your kind words about it. It's, it's really nice of you to say. Um, the Mastermind site is a football tactics and analysis website. Um, for anyone really who's looking to develop their craft or just learn more about the game, so most of the articles right now focus on the analytical, the tactical side of the game. Uh, there's a lot of coaching education on there. I recently put together an introduction to football analysis course, and there's a lot of eBooks. We used to have a podcast. So it's just a multimedia, different platform for coaches, analysts, players, whoever is interested in learning more about the game to learn about whatever is most interesting to them in that moment. Maybe it's about a team, maybe it's about a player, mm -hmm. uh, a specific match, because I try and do analysis on all of the above and more, um, and just kind of, for me, write about whatever I'm most interested in as well. Of course. So before we dive into a bit of the details of it, for you, what, you know, what motivates you to continue to provide all this information, and when did this process begin? So I started the website in 2016. Um, I was in my first year of university back then. So really at the time, I, I've always been a writer. I've always enjoyed writing. Mm -hmm. um, I used to write like, poetry and short stories and all different kinds of things like that. Yeah. Um, I wanted to kind of branch out my writing to be a little bit more like journalistic and write about a different topic that I was interested in, which was football. Um, I originally called the site the Mastermind site though because it wasn't exclusively just football at the time. I was writing about whatever I was interested in and football just happened to be one of the subjects. Okay. Then as the website kind of evolved and more people started getting into it, I started getting into it a bit more. I started coaching a bit more and developing my own coaching craft. Yep. Then around 2018, I decided that was the direction I wanted to go in with the website a bit more focusing more on the tactics, the analysis, the coaching side of the game. Yep. Um, and ever since then, it's kind of just 
continue to take off each and every year, which has been really cool. Um, being able to have discussions like this with people like yourself, who is a former professional player, like that's mm -hmm. very cool to me. Um, I think it was around late 2021 when David Edgar reached out to me, and he's obviously someone that you know very well. He's a former yes. Canadian men's national team player. Um, and him kind of finding my work was the first time that I was kind of like, okay, I can do this on a professional level for professionals. Um, and so from there, I kind of expanded into more of like a consultation process right. where youth coaches or professional players or anyone just kind of interested in having access to a performance analyst because it's something that a lot of players in Canada don't have access to. Yeah. Um, they can kind of get that. And now it is not just a website that focuses on studying professional uh, matches, but a website that also allows people from anywhere in the world to actively work with me on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Um, so I guess going back to your question, the fact that I have so many people circling this orbit that are just fascinated by what I'm writing and are very interested in my work and are very positive and encouraging toward my work. Yes. Um, that has all been very motivating. I also think if no one was following my work right now, I would probably still be motivated to try and get it to a place where people were following it. Okay. So no matter what, I think I would still be motivated just because of my love of the game and my passion for football. So it's a passion of yours for sure then, undoubtedly. Yeah. Um, so how many hours must you put in, not just to the analysis and that, but just watching football? You must watch tons of football. I would say in 2021, I watched like excessive amounts of football. Yes. Um, at that time, I was probably watching 10 to 20 matches a week. Wow. I've kind of, in 2022, and I think this year as well, I'm gonna be more so just focusing on the matches I'm most interested in, in that moment and providing like a bit of a better balance in my life. So I'm not just like a zombie who watches football and that's all I do. <laughs> yeah. um, I also think now that I've started working for professional players, uh, I'm, a lot of my focus is on like watching specific video clips and a specific player for maybe the whole entire morning, okay. which maybe I would have used to spend that time maybe watching like three or four matches instead. Yeah. Um, so it, now it's about more distilling what I'm analyzing for specific purposes for the website. Um, and yeah, like it's, it's something that I enjoy doing at the same time. It's never like a chore, like, oh, yeah. I have to watch this. Like, it's always fun. Yes. Um, and at the same time, I do currently have a full-time job as well outside of football. Okay. So I don't just spend all my day scrutinizing over this. I would say it's probably an hour or two a day. Uh, and then the weekends, sometimes a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So you have a better balance now. Um, I would say so. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. Um, with watching matches, for me, like I've tried to analyze different players or different situations within matches. And I read an article of yours, I told you often, Mike, it was about um, watching football from a tactical analysis point of view. And a lot of that information was helpful. Um, like I said, for me, I kind of find myself just enjoying the match. You know, I'm watching both teams, every player, and I'm just enjoying. But watching it from a tactical side is a bit different, right? Like, so can you touch on what things you would focus on or what things like you have to kind of take into consideration when you're analyzing a match versus just watching it 
Definitely. I think the important first step is to establish sort of your context into what you want to analyze. Um, and that doesn't necessarily have to be anything particularly specific. But what I usually do is I go into a match identifying I'm probably only going to be focusing on this one team. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it might even be only this one player. And then my entire analysis is guided around what that team is doing in possession and out of possession, using the opposition as context into all of that. Okay. But my main focus is on like one specific area so that I'm able to distill the information a little bit better for myself. Yes. Then the other really key step to that is whatever I'm watching, I'm watching what's happening off of the ball rather than what's happening on the ball. Okay. When we're watching from an entertainment perspective, obviously we're watching what is happening on the ball. Yes. If you're only watching the ball, you're missing so much more of that picture mm -hmm. because probably the least important person in that moment is the person on the ball. Yeah. But that's the person that we're more focused toward watching when we're watching for entertainment. And it's similar as a player too. If you're ball watching, that's a huge term, you're missing so much. There's runs being made off the ball, eye contact, body language, things that you're missing. And so I guess it's similar as a player, things you kind of pay attention to versus as you're analyzing a match, right? Absolutely. The details. And that's what we, what I try and focus on when I'm speaking to professional players, when I'm consulting with professional players or youth players, mm -hmm. uh, we're talking about all of their decisions based on what their perceptions were in that moment of ball, opposition, teammates, and space. So my scanning system, bots, I yeah. call it for short. Um, and it's not just exclusive to me. This is commonly used around the world. Um, I just gave it an acronym that I thought people would uh, be able to use a bit more easily mm -hmm. um, but we're focusing for those players on what did you see in that moment based on those four elements was this a correct decision based on those four elements maybe it wasn't maybe it was and like you said a lot of the time in that moment that we're breaking down for a player they were ball watching and they're missing that greater context of the opposition around them, where their teammates were in that moment, where the space was in that moment, yes. uh, because they only focused on the ball, which is probably the least important out of all four of those. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, man. I wanted to shift a bit to um, data. So in football, we often hear the term data-driven decision-making. So this could be made by the club, scouting, um, front office, you know, you name it. What exactly does this term mean? And how are these decisions affected by data? So I think in the last 10 years or so, there's been a, a bigger shift toward data-driven decision-making, yeah. which I think is cool in many ways because um, I think there's a great chapter in Soccernomics, which is a famous um, analysis economics book about soccer, mm -hmm. um, where scouting traditionally, you look at what is standing out to you as a scout rather than necessarily like focusing on specific numbers or even delving deeper into the data before you go and watch a player. So what used to happen was players were being picked up for like very strange reasons. Yes. Soccernomics talks about how uh, blonde players were more likely to be signed by a club than players with different hair colors simply because they stood out more on the pitch because their hair color was different. Really? 
Yeah, so wow. that kind of thing just doesn't happen in the modern game. Yes. Because take a club like Liverpool, and Pep Linders talks about this in his book Intensity, when he's scouting Luis Diaz, there's a whole entire data process that has already happened. They've identi identified a player based on data, yes. based on the role that they want to fill in their team. They want a player probably to be a little bit like Sadio Mane because they know he's about to leave. Yes. So they're looking into the numbers for specific stats around how they can sign a player of a similar quality um, and give their team that same kind of assets. Then they're going and watching him. Mm -hmm. And then making decisions on, okay, I think we could refine this element of his game. I think he'll fit into our style here. Um, before, they probably wouldn't even have known about Luis Diaz. Yes. They would have probably been scouting in the Premier League for a player of Sadio Mane's quality, which they maybe would not have found. Mm -hmm. um, so I think data has opened a lot of doors for clubs to just do more across the board, which I think is very exciting. Um, but I also think we cannot overemphasize, like, overemphasize the role that data can play, um, because analysis should still be performance driven. Yeah. So when I'm looking at analysis, I'm more so focusing on performance first, and then using what I see on the eye test. I'm backing up data to then say, okay, what I see is maybe either correct or incorrect based on the numbers. Okay, so let me ask you this because there's a lot of players that are effective in different ways and are good players, but the data might not back that up. And that's a tough one, right? Because like you said with Liverpool, if they're looking for someone of Sadio Mane's numbers and quality, you're gonna be looking at, you know, potentially dribbles completed, goals, of course, maybe runs made in the final third, things of this nature. I'm just kind mm -hmm. of putting something together. Um, but does the data always kind of back up these certain players who are quality but may not just have the numbers that another player has? Yeah, I think that's a really in interesting question. And it's an important question to ask. And that is why I would never only and solely rely on data. Mm -hmm. The eye test always has to go with that. Um, specifically around your club's like style of play and what you want in that specific role. Um, because I think there are a lot of players who really pop on the field that the data would underrepresent, um, And there are a lot of players that maybe don't pop quite as well on the field that the data really showcases yes. some outstanding attributes of them. I think the more important question is, for what we want in this team, is this player able to provide that from both the data's perspective and from our perspective of seeing this player? Um, because the data obviously doesn't always tell the full story, yep. especially if you're looking at certain metrics, say, for example, progressive passes. If a player makes 10 progressive passes, that's amazing, that's like outstanding, but I would be more interested in the player who's completed five out of five progressive passes and they're at 100% progressive pass ratio as opposed to that player who maybe made 10 but also did not complete five. Okay. So making sure that we're assessing the right numbers yeah. as well um, for, we want, for what we want to see I think is the more important question to ask. Um, and I think overarchingly 
the data will give you what you want to see mm-hmm. based on what you want for your team most of the time. There are going to be certain cases where a player doesn't stand out in the data that maybe you could have signed that would have been perfect for the role. Um, I think a lot of times those are roles that maybe don't necessarily require much in the way of data to be successful, um, okay. such as maybe a center back whose game focuses more on the defensive end of the spectrum uh, and very little in possession. Okay. Maybe a center midfielder who, um, a Scott McTominay type whose yes. role is like so crucially about what he does off the ball. Yeah his numbers on the ball are never going to spike very high. Right. But then you have someone who, like Casemiro, who plays in a similar position, who does similar off the ball, but I think on the ball adds a little more, right? So his data might show a bit different. Um, I want to do something cool. I hope, um, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I want to add value, like I said, to some young players and listeners. So if we can, I want to go through um, like a formation, let's say a 4-3-3 and just go through the positions. And if you can, name one or two top uh, statistics that are important for that position. So that when a young player goes back to watch their games and analyzes, they're able to say, look, I like a for a fullback, for example, I crossed the ball five times and it completed it. I completed the cross once. That would be a poor stat, but they would be looking at crossing for a fullback point of view. Are, yeah. you, are you down for that? I'm definitely down for that. I would say the one caveat is that um, I look at the game more so from a perspective of roles rather than positions. Okay. So uh, when we're talking about a fullback, for example, I would say there's three different roles that a fullback could play on the pitch. Yes. Um, and each of those roles, there's different data and different statistics that I personally would be looking at to say... Um, that I would be more interested in evaluating their performance on the pitch mm-hmm. over, say, if they don't play that specific role in the team. Um, okay. So I can definitely do that still, though. Definitely. Um, and I'm happy to. Yeah. For sure. And in cases like that, like you're right, you know, it might be more inverted for fullback yeah. where they're playing a bit deeper. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, but you could, again, add your kind of thoughts on that and why you would make that stats um, important or unimportant. Sure. So we'll start uh, solo striker, let's say a number nine. Um, important statistics to look at? I think most people would start with XG. Okay. Um, what is XG exactly as well? So X, XG is expected goals, and what you are looking at is based on the shot that a player took, how likely are they to score a goal based on everything that happened in that situation, such as where the opposition were placed, where the shot was taken from, um, how hard they even hit the ball versus how soft they hit the ball. It takes into account so many different factors that say um, 70% of the time that this player strikes the ball from this position with these defenders around this situation, they would score the goal. And that would be an XG of 0.7. So for a striker, we are, I would say, more concerned about XG than actual goal output, which might confuse some people. But... Why we would do that is because we want to make sure that the type of chances that a striker is finishing are going to be repeatable over time. So an XG will give us a better understanding of how likely a player is to score goals in the future than their actual goal output would be. Okay. Um, 
Uh, for me in particular for a striker, what I would want to see is their ability to hold up the play and link play with others. Yes. So I'd be looking at um, their progressive passes received. I would be looking at their ability to pass the ball, maybe even something as simple as passing percentage or uh, passes under pressure, okay. how well they uh, pass the ball in situations that are maybe very condensed and crowded. A lot yes. of the time a striker is in situations that are like that. Um, so I think obviously that is very important. The final thing for a striker would be the defensive side of the game. Mm -hmm. So I would maybe be looking into the pressure percentages. Um, how well do they pressure in the attacking third uh, based on those percentages? Okay. That for me would be also very important to highlight as well. Okay, awesome. So you said XG, um, pressing, how they press in certain areas and how they receive balls under pressure and connect passes, which is important. Um, let's move on to wingers. Doesn't matter, right and left wing. Absolutely. I, for me, I would want my winners to be the most dynamic on the pitch, okay. to be very direct, very capable of going 1v1. So I'd be looking at their attacking dueling percentages. Okay. How well do they perform when they are 1v1 against an opponent? Uh, I would be looking at their ability to also assist. So we're maybe looking at expected assists in that case rather than assists for the same reason we talked about with XG. Um, and then again, you can look at things like defensive dueling percentages. If you want that winner to be defensively minded, some would not, like a Mbappe, for example, no one is going to care about his defensive dueling percentages. <laughs> yes. But a different type of winner, maybe a Rashford type, his role is very much focused around being a figurehead in the press. So you would again want those defensive dueling percentages or a pressure percentage again to highlight how well he's contesting those 1v1 battles. Okay, just a question for our wingers out there. Bravery is something that is, you know, important as a winger, taking players on, the willingness to do so. If you're continually taking players on, but your percentage is quite low, let's say you're creating one to three good chances a match, but you're losing the ball quite often. You get the ball, take players on, brave, lose it, don't matter, you get it back, you go again. Is this a good characteristic to have in a winger? And is that data negatively impacting kind of how people look at them as a player? Two great questions in there. <laughs> I think first, um, for that winger, what I would most be concerned about is, are they taking players on at the wrong moments? Okay. So the percentages help us to establish they took a player on and they lost that battle but maybe it was still the right time to take that player on, and that's where that eye test again becomes important. Okay. Um, but if I was able to work with a player and study their 1v1 battles and consistently see they're constantly taking players on when it's not the best decision, when they have maybe other players in more advantageous positions to pass the ball to, mm -hmm. then I would be working with that player to help them better perceive the events that are happening around them and better perceive the teammates, the opposition, the space that's around them, yes. so that they understand the moments to take players on versus the moments that they should be um, releasing that pressure in a different way. Okay, so it's important about recognizing the moments in which to do so. Um, okay, let's move on to our midfield then. We'll say we're in a 4-3-3, so we have one holding mid and uh, you know two kind of eights. 
we'll go a 10 and an 8. Sure. That so sounds good. We'll go to our 10 then, our attacking player, our playmaker, as you will. Uh, again, I think I would be looking for progressive passes received. I would be looking for their ability to link play under pressure. Uh, and then more importantly for them is not only like what they're doing back to goal, uh, like a striker, yeah. I then want to see forward passing as well. So um, not only sheer numbers of progressive passes or progressive carries, I would be wanting to see percentages in those numbers. So if they've completed 80% of their progressive passes yes. or 60% of their progressive carries, that's more valuable for me to know than simply that like raw number of those values but for a 10 i want them to be capable of breaking lines yes regardless of if that is from a passing perspective or from a perspective of their ability to dribble carry the ball into space um kevin de bruyne in a 4-3-3 like he's probably that 10 yeah for a player of like that high standard you want them to be the key creator in the team as well so you're, again, looking at those assist numbers in the form of expected assist and key passes because those are better metrics of evaluating how likely he is to assist goals over time than just like that sheer number of assists. Okay. Players like De Bruyne and even Bruno Fernandes for me is one who takes a lot of chances in the final third. And he may lose more, um, you know, forward passes and assist or expected assists as he does than he does complete them. So, again, for a player like this who you want to take chances and be brave, how does this stat reflect how they really impact the game? And is it negative or is it something you want from that type of player? So it's definitely something you want from that type of player. And that is why I would not be concerned about Bruno Fernandes completing, say, 60% of his passes in a match. Mm -hmm. um, I might be more concerned about like how well he completed his short passes, but the long passes the, when he's dropping in deep and then spraying the ball forward, um, I would be looking at is was it the right moment versus the wrong moment, yeah. um, and how well did he find that teammate in space or find that teammate at their feet? Uh, so a lot more goes into that than just like he completed that pass. Um, so I think it might be an, an important time to say that. I've broken the game down into 25 different roles. I call it my role continuity evaluation system. Okay. And it separates data from the eye test in a way that I don't think other statistical platforms that assess players do. Most websites say like a who scored or a foot mob, sofa score, yeah. they're evaluating based on like sheer numbers only. And that does have value. Uh, it has a lot of value in ways that I, pe I think people don't use it for. And I think people use it as like gospel to say like this player had a good performance. Yes. Um, what my system does, it takes into consideration more into those numbers by evaluating the eye test a bit more. How well did that pass actually come off? Not yeah. just that pass came off. Um, so I think that is an important discrepancy to note. Um, and that's again, where like, evaluating players based on their role becomes more um, of an efficient way of doing this because again that Bruno Fernandez Kevin De Bruyne type we want them to be doing that exactly. we don't necessarily want like Fred or Scott McTominay to be doing that yeah. um, it's not their role like that's not why they're in the team yeah and those players Bruno and Kevin they live off doing those things and when it does come off you think oh 
you know they they just see certain things and you know like you said sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't but the bravery to do so in that position okay let's go to our number eight um so box to box midfielder Great. I, I like how you gave me the specific role because that <laughs> definitely helps, uh, especially because I break central midfielders down into four different roles. Okay. So um, that box to box player, say like a Gunda one, yes, exactly. uh, it is very helpful for us to study their off the ball characteristics a bit more. So the data on the ball becomes much less important. I would say the only ones that I would be more concerned about for a box to box midfielder on the ball. Uh, from the attacking perspective would be their ability to progressively carry and progressively dribble. Okay. Um, I would be looking into their ability to, again, receive progressive passes, um, their ability to move off the ball in a way that benefits their teammates. So how you actively quantify that into a statistic becomes difficult, but we can study things like progressive runs, which you mentioned before, um, and the one that I keep on mentioning, which is progressive passes received, because it's a general marker of being able to say, this player allowed themselves to be in enough space to receive enough passes over time. Uh, so it's a pretty good marker for like their ability to perceive space. Okay. Um, from the defensive perspective, if they're a box-to-box -box midfielder, we, again, we want them to have a defensive role as well. Mm -hmm. So tackle percentage, pressure percentage, um, their ability to intercept possession, uh, specifically if you can adjust that metric for the amount of possession that that player had on the field then you're getting a better understanding of how well they actually help their team win back possession. Uh, Gundogan, for example, he plays in a city team where he's not going to make like a heavy number of interceptions. Right. And we can't necessarily establish like a percentage around his interceptions. Yes. But what we can do is assess how many interceptions he made based on the possession that Manchester City had and then compare that to a player in a team with much less possession and evaluate them side by side. So it would be a percentage number kind of thing. It's essentially like a percentage number. It works the same, but it, it's, um, it kind of is like goals per 90 or like passes per 90. Like it's, um, you get a metric that's like a similar decimal point. So it's comparable, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, let's move on. I don't even want to call it a six. I don't like putting numbers into yeah. these positions, but a holding midfield player, again, tough because different ways to kind of have a midfield there player, is. a holding midfield player. Let's say a player like Jorginho Brozovic, yeah. the tempo setters yes. of the midfielder. How would you kind of um, describe importance that for that position? Definitely. So for those players, we're looking at their ability to progress the play up the pitch. So how well did they complete their progressive passes, their lawn passes, uh, their switches of play from one side of the field to the other. Passes under pressure is again a very uh, useful one for that position because those are players that are often very key to dictating and facilitating everything. Mm -hmm. And just to say that they completed maybe 80% of their long passes does tell a really nice story, but it doesn't tell the entire story because we're not sure if they did that under pressure or if they did that under very little pressure at all. So our ability to establish passes under pressure is also, again, a very important one for that position. Okay. And even a player like Jorginho, I would still be heavily focused on their ability to win back the ball out of possession. Uh, so 
those raw defensive numbers, their defensive doing, uh, their number of blocks, uh, that can be a possession adjusted as well, uh, tackle percentage again, interceptions, those are very useful metrics again because we want that six to not only control the game, but also even a Jorginho type to be able to win back possession for their team. It's crucial, isn't it, in that yeah. position? be able to stop the counterattack and things of that nature so especially if you're playing alongside a box-to-box -box midfielder in a creative 10 mm -hmm. like there's not there's two players that are actively going forward yes. you have to be the one that's screening play and winning back possession a lot more than anyone else around you yeah and there's going to be moments where you're one-on-one -on -one in a lot of space and you have to make a decision right do you stop the play dead there mm -hmm. and you, that's a decision you have to make so that goes on what you said which is um when you make these decisions so again that's the eye test right compared yeah. to the data okay we'll move on to our defenders now we'll go to a fullback we'll say our right fullback is attacking and our left fullback is more um i don't want to say stay at home but operating from a half space position rather sure. than bombing forward so we'll start with the right back who's attacking um attacking more so so how would you say their stats are important for them definitely so the crossing percentages that you mentioned earlier i do think is an important metric i wouldn't say it's the most important metric um i think you mentioned it was one out of five i actually think that's a really decent ratio for crossing mm -hmm. um crosses like just tend not to come off overarchingly so one out of five is actually pretty good yes. um i would be looking at expected assists and key passes uh, and a couple other ones that are really big for fullbacks are progressive passes into the penalty area uh, okay. or carries into the penalty area. Those are kind of metrics that more so than ever, we want our fullbacks to be hitting. Yes. A Cancelo type or an Alexander-Arnold type, uh, maybe more so Alexander-Arnold in the past because now he's become more inverted. Mm -hmm. um, but we want those players to be so crucial to generating chances and advancing the team into the penalty area by creating these sort of overloads. So their ability to get into the penalty area does paint a reasonably good picture for us in terms of their ability to combine in those overloads, because those are the type of areas that they're going to be working in a lot of the time. Okay, very important. And let's move on to the other side fullback who's playing a bit more of an inverted role in the half space. And if you don't mind, if you can just pick a player who you think um, does play that role so that our, our listeners have a reference of kind of, because I think when you think of fullback, we're thinking bombing forward, yeah. getting crosses in the box, attacking, but that's changing now, right? And you're noticing it. So what type of player kind of fits this inverted role? And then go into, if you can, certain statistics that are important for that role. Absolutely. So that is your Zinchenko type, and okay. he is one of my absolutely favorite inverted yes. fullbacks. Uh, what he does in possession in terms of his ability to spray lawn passes in particular is outstanding. Uh, the ability to play progressive passes at the right moment, so those progressive passing percentages numbers. Um, though the switches of play i would be assessing a lot of like similar characteristics to what we did for the deep line playmaker because they actually have a pretty similar role in that system mm, yes um i would just say then more so on the defensive perspective again we're looking at uh how well did they win back possession in terms of their duels and in terms of their tackles and their pressures because in transition that inverted fullbacks role is so instrumental in ways that i don't think gets talked about enough we look at that player as being 
like this deep facilitator of amazing passes up the field or just like that extra member that can help circulate the ball. Yes. But they are now in a central focused position when possession turns over. So the ability for them to win back the ball becomes more crucial because of the verticality that is necessary in attacking transitions. So if you can win back possession to a degree that a player like Zinchenko or Walker does, yes. the rest of your players around you have a lot less to do. Yeah. So it, that is very important for that inverted fullback as well. Okay, and statistics like that, um, when you're looking at their positioning, and I don't wanna say statistics, because that might be more of an eye test um, their positioning when the ball, you know, when their team has possession and when it's tra transitioned to out of possession, is that measurable um, based on just the stat? It is. It's measurable through movement patterns. So heat maps, touch maps, okay. uh, even things like tackle maps, like where they touch the ball yes. helps to identify what kind of role they played. And I actually use heat maps a lot when I am classifying players into different roles because when where they are spiking red on the pitch in terms of their touches and their movements, yes. that is probably the most important thing to study when we're uh, finding a discrepancy between what type of player they are. Okay, makes sense. Um, now we'll move on to a center backs. Um, I played with a few center backs who were big on statistics, and especially when they're not playing, uh, you'd be like, oh, look at my clearances headers away which are all very you know look you know respect um so not everyone is very focused on the data but for a center back what is an important stat um, to take note of it definitely depends on the team that you're in i think like all of these so if you're in a defensively minded team i would be more concerned about your clearances your ability to win aerial duels yes. i think overarchingly aerial duels is an important one regardless of team style mm -hmm. but blocks and clearance is a bit more so imperative for that like burnley type of defender like okay. your tarkovsky and your me in the past yes uh it's a lot more important that they are making clearances and blocks and they actually have like a very important role in possession as well because they are also tasked with spraying long passes. Yes. You're just less concerned about how well they're completing those passes because it doesn't necessarily matter if those passes are completed. It just matters that they're getting the ball up the field at the right moment to an extent, but even just <laughs> at all, because yeah. that's the style of play that they want. Um, so for maybe more of a ball playing center half, I would be looking at how well do they progressively play passes how well do they progressively carry and then how well do they play lawn passes uh those especially um passes into the final third is a really important one for both center backs and that like inverted fullback because okay. their role is not only to like break play and break those lines but to actively advance the ball into the final third at the right moments too so that the other players like your inverted wainers or your creative tens can then create chances in that final third more effectively. Okay. Your defensively minded center backs, I want to see them winning their defensive duels. And I think that is the most important one. They don't have to be making four or five tackles and interceptions a game. What's more important to me is if they are winning a high percentage of those defensive duels, and that is so, so imperative for center backs in particular. Mark Gahey, for, who plays for Crystal Palace, yes. he makes maybe like one <laughs> tackle a game, if even that, but his defensive dueling percentages are so incredibly high, and that is way in mo more important to recognize. Uh, okay, so th that's an important stat. 
I'm tearing up here. <laughs> I think it's because uh, I was going to leave out the goalkeepers, but I thought, you know what? We can't forget the goalkeepers. Um, so let's touch on the goalkeepers. What are important stats for, of course, you know, saving saving shots, but um, is there data that for goalkeepers is very important? There's a lot of really good data <laughs> out now for goalkeepers that didn't exist in the past, which I think is so fascinating and so cool. Yes. Um, I think goalkeepers are becoming one of the more interesting positions to study, but I think uh, statistical sites that I mentioned before have a difficult time acting adequately assessing goalkeepers because they're trying to use the same metrics that they do for all of the other positions okay so that's again where my role continuity system comes in and says these are the metrics we actually want to study for that goalkeeper that are more important so we're looking at things like their um their ability to win possession when they come off their line so how many times did they do that in a match and how successfully did they do that in that match? Um, what was the average distance of those clearances? Okay. Helps to tell, like, or not even necessarily clearances, but tackles defensive actions across the board. Tells a story of maybe how high the defensive line played or mm. how important their role in actually sweeping was. Yes. So that is a, a cool one to study in greater detail. And then for uh, the playing side of it I would want that same goalkeeper whether they are more of like your shot stopper type that they're mostly just there to save the shots or if they're a sweeper keeper who does a little bit more I would no matter what want them to be good on the ball and completing a high number of short and medium passes the longer passes are less important in terms of like the percentage numbers again for them yes um, as well as like the average distance that those long passes are raising and reaching okay. because that average distance is difficult to compare against other goalkeepers simply because I might do a long pass at a certain distance because that is where my teammates are mm -hmm. as opposed to a goalkeeper who's just like hammering the ball as far as they possibly can. Yes. So the short and medium passes for me are the most important there. Okay. Interesting, man. Honestly, that was amazing. Thank you for going through that. And just on the goalkeepers last, like, it's interesting to see how all of these affect each other. Like, each position kind of affects how data would be represented from another position. For example, you're talking about a goalkeeper who would smash the ball long upfield. You see Ederson and Allison with that long-range ability to find a Mo Salah or whoever it is making that run into the final third, which... You don't always get that from a keeper, and so that's where their statistic would um, just change based on how they play and the players they have around them, right? Yeah, and those players might not even spike highest in a long passing percentage, which is really important to note because uh, maybe even passes into the final third is an even more important metric there than studying their long passing percentages Yes. because then we're evaluating how often they got the play into dangerous areas as opposed to how often they completed that pass that is very much less important um so yeah i appreciate you allowing me to go through that because i think that is one of the bigger things that i've done with the website is establish that role continuity evaluation system and if people are interested in hearing more about that yes. uh, they can definitely check that out and see the, the 25 different roles that i've established and 
uh, go through each of them. There's only two that I haven't completed an article for yet, and they're both forward positions. So okay. if you're a midfielder, a defender, a winger, and you are looking to identify what kind of role do I play in my team, how do I fit into this puzzle, first I would say like talk to your coach more and open up that dialogue. Yes. But also I would say check out those articles and see the kind of uh, players that you look up to and where they classify. Huge, huge. Um, another aspect of your website I wanted to touch on is the coach education program. So um, I think there's going to be a lot of new coaches. There's always new coaches coming up. And you know some are former players. Some are just getting to the game because they love it. It's tough to come into football and create your own philosophy. You know, It feels like you maybe you're following someone else's footsteps and people want to be original or unique in their development. Either way, how would you recommend a coach kind of find their own unique coaching philosophy? It's a great question. You always have to start in your own context. So I would be asking questions like, what age are the players that you are working with? What level are they at? What are their specific strengths and their specific weaknesses on both an individual level and on a team level? Okay. So if a coach right now listening to this hasn't studied their players to the extent of that, that they've gone through each individual player and figured out what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses, that would be an amazing starting place to then establish your principles of play and your coaching philosophies. Yes. Um, when we're talking about coaching philosophies, the important discrepancy is are you working with youth players or are you working with professional players okay. if you are working with youth players your coaching philosophy should be that players are having fun and that they are getting game time that they're playing the game that they love yes. they're being put in gameristic situations they are not being asked to wait in lines they're not playing uh, games where they're going to be eliminated and not get the chance to actually play they should be having lots of time on the ball Lots of time playing the game with their friends. Yes. The environment should be positive. It should all be about having fun. Okay. Everything you should do should be guided into that. At the professional level, you can establish a bit more of like a demand, a bit more of we want to see you play in this certain way. Uh, then I think you should at the youth level. I overarchingly think that you should let youth players express themselves uh, and be in a situation where they have a lot of autonomy. And I think there are definitely ways to get that at the professional level, but I think at the professional level, you can guide um, what you want as a coach a little bit more than you should at the youth level. Okay. And at the professional level, someone who's going in with their, let's say they already have their philosophy. And I've had this in my professional career where coaches come into a, a team or um, he didn't necessarily choose the players at that moment, they weren't his players that he brought in. Um, but he had his own philosophy, but these players didn't necessarily fit that. So you spoke about the importance of recognizing the characteristics of your players and maybe adjusting. So would you say going in with your set philosophy and trying to change these players is the wrong way to approach it? I think it's maybe not the wrong way to approach it, but it's maybe the wrong place to start. Okay. So you should always be starting from a place of what are my players good at at this moment and what are their unique characteristics that make them into a team mm -hmm. and how can I create balance around that because a lot of coaches will maybe just pick especially at the youth level 
this is my best center back, this is my best right back, this is my best central midfield, with no regard for how those pieces of the puzzle fit together yeah. uh, and the type of roles that they should be playing to coordinate together as one big team that can work in tandem. Um, so at the professional level, and you're coming in with your own, this is the way I want to play because this is how I see the game. Yes. I think that process needs to be gradual. So I'll take my example from the youth level where I coach. I basically invented a team from scratch of players that were recreational level, and I said, I want to make this into a competitive team. Most of them came from a background of playing other sports like hockey, swimming, whatever. So they were very physical players, but they didn't have like the technical tactical awareness. Okay. But my style of play that I want to see is very much press and possess. So they're, they're going to be able to do the pressing components and the winning back possession quickly. They're less so going to be able to play out from the back, play under pressure, be able to keep possession of the ball. Yes. So gradually you're working in exercises and gameristic scenarios that get the best out of your players into the philosophy that you want but that process doesn't just happen overnight and i think that's what a lot of coaches even at the professional level make the mistake of doing is saying this is the way i want to play these are the players i'm going to play and being very stubborn in not adjusting to the moment and to the opposition okay. because the best managers they're honestly not even the best tacticians. They're the best motivators for one. Mm -hmm. But for another, they're also very astute at adjusting their principles of play to what is the current moment I'm playing? What is the current team I'm playing? What players do I have available? And who do I want to put in my team based on all of this range of factors that come into effect? Mm, and we even see at the highest level that this takes time now. You know, coaches that do have their philosophies and managers come in and want to implement that, that it takes time, right? There's not just a, a formula that just obviously you, you implement it and it clicks and then you win. That's ideal, but it's really the case, right? I mean, look at Arteta. He mm -hmm. started out from a place of his ideas and his philosophies weren't necessarily always coming out right off the start yes. but what he is is he's a very good motivator of his players i mean he's very enthusiastic he understands the psychology of all of this so now you're getting a team of players who are hungry to fight for their manager who now buy into his style of play um so i think th like that is a really important starting place is you're getting to know your players on a human level first. Yes. You're focusing on the social atmosphere, the psychology of your players, less so about your tactical perspectives. And you can then gradually work into your what you actually want to see and your principles over time. Eric Ten Hag, I'll just give him an, an, as an example really quickly as well. Yes. He's very much adjusted his style of play since he came in from Ajax. At Ajax, it was very much possession heavy there was so much unique uh distinctive positional rotations you're not seeing that to the same extent as you are at united it's like the most rudimentary positional rotations you will see yes. um, and it's heavily focused on counter-attacking football which actively benefits people like marcus rashford and anthony martial that is the way they've always excelled yeah. and you're getting a manager who's able to see the players that he has at his disposal and adapt to the situation to improve the results over time in his early days there were disastrous results because he was trying to impose a style of play that the players maybe were not quite ready for yeah so he had to understand the players that he had right yeah 
a similarity, funny you brought those two managers up uh, between Arteta and Ten Hag is they both, so Arteta made a decision um, early on to get rid of Aubameyang, an experienced player, the skipper, scored goals, it's not like he was performing super poorly, um, but I think it's down to character, right? And you saw Aaron Ten Hag and his decision, not, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo left kind of on his own doing, but his decision to kind of leave him out the team at times. Mm -hmm. So do you think that came down to, again, just characters and he wanted kind of younger characters who are hungry, who he could, um, I don't want to say manipulate, it's the wrong word, uh, but kind of get his point across and they'll take it in more than someone who's experienced and, you know, has won it all. So what do you think that decision came down to? I think it definitely comes down to the social atmosphere in place and the type of environment that a manager wants to create around their team. So if you have this kind of player who's creating more of a negative atmosphere in Ronaldo's case or in Aubameyang's case who is maybe not taking the game as seriously as they should be as a professional footballer, yes. uh, then that does not set the right tone of what you want to see as a manager. And you would be foolish as a manager to just say, this player is Ronaldo, this player is Aubameyang, I'm not going to do anything about that. Because then the younger players that you mentioned or anyone else watching that can say, oh, I'm going to slack off too. I'm going to be late to training. Yes. I'm going to misbehave. I'm going to talk back to the manager. So setting your tone is very important when you come into a new environment um, and being assertive in the right moments is very important so that you establish your presence mm -hmm. and you say, this is the type of environment that I want to create. If this is not being followed, then we do not necessarily need you in this team. And I think both managers made the right call there. And I think you could say that unequivocally, yes. that it was the right decision. Well, look how it's paid off now. And those decisions that they made were questioned at the time. Not easy decisions, but you're seeing how it paid off. And the teams, both of them, seem to be doing better after that. So I just want to touch on, lastly, a bit on the World Cup. So, man, what a month it was of great football. We saw Canada uh, represented on the national stage. Um, what does this mean, in your opinion, for the future of Canadian soccer? Are we on the right path? And was this World Cup good for us? And then lastly, I just want to know kind of where we can improve going into 2026 and maybe what needs to, done to, what needs to be done to take advantage of this opportunity, which I think it is coming up. It's such an exciting time for Canadian soccer and having John Herdman on board for that Canadian men's team uh, without the women's team being like any worse has been so amazing for us on yes. both sides of the spectrum. Uh, and his ability to motivate his players and to say to them as a team, we are all brothers. We are playing for each other. We are playing for our country. It's just a different mentality that our players have now than they've ever had in the past mm -hmm. because you have this coach that very much understands the psychological aspects of the game and how to get the best out of his players yes. um, and how to create balance in his side. In terms of the World Cup specifically, what I kind of noticed was that on the grandest of stages, what we saw was a much less well-balanced team than what we saw in the CONCACAF qualifying stages, mm -hmm. which is unfortunate. I do think a lot of the errors we saw came a little bit down to psychological errors, uh, more so than like technical, tactical errors. Okay. Um, the physicality was always there. We are one of the most physical teams in terms of both speed and strength. Yes. Um, I think Herdman still tried to play to his own unique player 
and their style of play, their characteristics, which was very important. But with certain players not being fully at their best, we didn't necessarily see that balance come out to the same extent as we might have. Eustachio not being quite at his level, mm -hmm. I think was a particularly important one because he's so important to the entire team in both phases of the game, attacking and defensive, yes. especially just the role he plays in central midfield. It is important that he is like that figurehead and no one is able to play the game in the same way. Perhaps there was an over-reliance on Atiba Hutchinson, who's a bit older now and maybe really struggled in, against Croatia in particular at um, defending against that midfield three that was kind of just running in circles around him. Which, what an unreal midfield, though, to try and you know, yeah, <laughs> keep That's the on. unfortunate thing. Um, and I think looking back on it now from a Canadian perspective, and you see Morocco and Croatia in the semifinals, you can kind of be even more proud of what Canada did accomplish at the World Cup, Very true. Uh, which is cool. In terms of what needs to improve for the future, I would say from like a Canadian Premier League and below perspective, more emphasis on performance analysis at the highest level will really benefit our players and our managers and their ability to understand the game on a deeper level okay. and to not be stretched so thin to have to come up with all the answers on their own. So if clubs can set aside some of their budget in the future for a greater emphasis toward analysis, yes. that will be very beneficial to us as a nation as a whole. Mm -hmm. Also, the structure we've created at the youth level is a little bit difficult in some ways. Um, firstly, it requires any coach who wants to make their way through this path that has been created for us in Canada soccer we are required to have a B license. Yes. So if you are starting out from a place of I'm young and I want to help grow the game in Canada and I want to make a living out of this, you are probably needing to coach for about 10 years until you can get to that place that you are making a, the cost of living. Yes. So young people are becoming frustrated and saying, I'm being deemed not good enough by someone who has seen me coach one time over a video I'm good at other things in other areas of my life. I'm going to leave the game. And we don't want to see that. We want to see our young coaches staying in the game as long as possible. So coaching courses and coaching licenses should become more accessible mm -hmm. in a lot of different ways. And that's maybe like an entirely different discussion. Um, but I think as well, from the playing perspective, OPDL is now prioritized so much here in Ontario yes. that those are the only players that are going to be scouted. And what you are finding lately is that a lot of those OPDL teams are no better than teams that are not in OPDL. You're seeing a lot of Ontario Cup winners mm -hmm. that are not OPDL teams because they're playing in environments that they can maybe afford that require less travel. Mm -hmm. They're playing with their friends they're playing at a level that they think that they will enjoy rather than the OPDL, which is only like a select few players and a select few parents and families can actually afford. 100%, yep. I've actually coached a regional team that never lost to an OPDL team that was the level above us. Yes. To this day, I don't coach them anymore, but to this day, they have not lost to that OPDL team. But the regional players, they don't want to play at that OPDL level because they don't want to pay for it. They don't want to travel. They want to play with their friends. Mm -hmm. They're never going to get scouted. It's the OPDL players that are probably worse 
that are going to be the ones in that talent pool getting scouted, which also diminishes the ability for the players that are actually talented in that team, yes. who are actually ready to play OPDL, to really improve their game because they're playing with players that are not quite at their level. Right. So I think the structure that we've created does have a few gaps and you're going to see less Jesse Flemings who come out of recreational based soccer yep. and a club recreational in the sense that like that is what the club that she came out of prioritized. They didn't prioritize development based um, soccer, but she was playing for an OYSL team because her team had won league championship after league championship and then made it to that place yes. where she could now get scouted. That doesn't happen anymore. Mm -hmm. Only a few select clubs in Ontario can actually be at that OPDL level, which means we're only scouting from a select few amount of players. We're doing ourselves a massive disservice by missing out on these players as well. And it comes down to, like you said, a lot of it financial, unfortunately. Um, so how does, is there a way to change, like, this is a model that we have, the pay-to-play model, of course, but is there a way to change that? I would hope that there's a way to get more of the players that should be playing OPDL to be convinced to make it their way of living. Mm -hmm. um, and I definitely don't necessarily know the ins and outs of the structures in other provinces across the country. Right. But the way it works in Ontario, it, it has become difficult for the, a lot of talented players who maybe just don't have the means to to play at that highest level and set themselves up in a place where they can get scouted. Mm -hmm. um, like Alfonso Davies is a great example. Like he was basically like a street footballer and he was he was not just like in this club environment like he was a hungry player playing every single day just doing what he loved and eventually he gets recognized and goes to Whitecaps and then makes his way through the system but um, if we're only looking at the system to establish the players that should be playing at that level we're potentially missing out on a lot of players who could become that next Alfonso Davies or that next Jonathan David yeah Man, Reese, man, what a conversation. So much value you provided today. Lastly, I just want to touch on something I read in one of your articles, which is huge. It's something I thought about, but when you hear it as a statistic, it's crazy. So as a player, in a 90-minute match, we're on the ball. A player could be on the ball for about two to three minutes. Yeah. Two to three minutes of a 90-minute match, right? Yeah. That's huge. So if you can, just to leave us, how important is it in those two to three minutes of touching the ball to make sure your actions are important, decisive, and ultimately good actions. It is very important because you do have so, like, so much of a limited time on the ball where you are able to make actions that stand out to maybe your coach or your manager or the fans that are screaming at you. Yeah. Um, and all of that pressure is going into that. It's probably more important then to emphasize the role that a player plays off of the ball more than we do because of that like 87 to 88 minutes that they're spending off of the ball. Mm -hmm. uh, so both are simultaneously important and without the proper scanning and without the proper tactical awareness, a player is not going to be able to make sound decisions on or off the ball. And so any player or any coach listening to this, one of the key areas of the game that you should be looking to improve upon for your players or for yourself is your scanning of the field and your tactical understanding of how and when and where and why and yeah, how, when, where and why to scan for opposition, teammates, space and the ball as that fourth one that's probably less important yes. um 
But yeah, anytime you're on the ball, you have to make those seconds count. So if you're not scanning the field, it's not going to go as well for you. It's huge, man. And a lot of the time, before you receive the ball, it's what is happening before, what you do before that makes a difference, right? So, yeah. man, huge. Um, so your site, the Mastermind site, obviously, where could the people find you on social? Because I recently found you on Twitter and the information you provide there, again, brilliant. So could you plug in your Twitter? Just say it and we'll kind of put it down there for the people. Absolutely. So if you want to find me on social media, you can find me at Desmond Reese. That's D-E-S-M-O-N-D-R-H-Y-S. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, if you are looking to uh, contact me on like a professional level, you can also find me there. Uh, and then the website, themastermindsite.com, reach out to me, reese at themastermindsite.com if you do have any questions, because I'm always happy to chat with coaches and answer any questions that they have. So whatever works best for you in terms of contacting me, I'm available for you, either email, Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever works for you, you can find me. Brilliant, man. Thanks again for coming on. Good conversation and uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it and I, I'm looking forward to listening to the other episodes you did as well. So Definitely. thanks for allowing me to be part of this. Of course. Guys, this is Unlocked. See you next time.